This is a Federal News Network podcast. Recruiting early career employees continues to move higher up on the to-do list for the Office of Personnel Management. For the time being, though, OPM's approach to early career hiring will come through small steps. That's because full transformation of the federal hiring process is not likely anytime soon. Still, the federal sector lags behind the private sector when it comes to attracting younger employees. Here with some of OPM's latest strategies, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman and this early career talent. Why, Drew, are they focusing so hard on it? Great question, Tom. This is largely because something that is talked about a lot for the federal workforce is that younger employees are underrepresented, especially compared to the private sector. We've seen recent data on that from the Partnership for Public Service. They said, for example, Gen Z employees, so the youngest group of federal workers who are under age 25, make up just 1.6% of the federal workforce, compared with 9.1% in the private sector. So there's a big difference there. And with older employees in the federal workforce, they're a little bit more overrepresented. So Gen X and baby boomers those two generations make up much larger percentages of the federal workforce compared with the private sector. By the way, in citing those numbers, do these organizations equalize for the jobs actually done? I mean, when you think about it, a lot of the younger workers are flipping hamburgers, working in retail, I don't know, maybe working lawn maintenance for the county rec department, jobs the federal government doesn't have at all. I wonder if anyone's looked at that angle on That's it. a great question, and it's not something that was explicitly mentioned in this partnership report. But right, they've got their marching orders now. Right, but they did say that the number isn't necessarily extremely meaningful. It's something that is important to think about, but it's, of course, something that might even out over time, maybe a combination of hiring more younger workers to the government and you know, those, some of those workers moving to more sure. um, professional-type jobs. But this early career recruitment and early career hiring is something that is becoming more and more pressing as time goes on, regardless of those types of positions. And there are some different ways that agencies are looking at trying to hire or what they're trying to focus on when they're trying to recruit different generations of employees. It's something that uh, Director of OPM, Kieran Ahuja, talked about recently at an event. You all know the statistic that less than 7% of the federal workforce is under the age of 30. So we track much lower than the private sector by a wide margin. So attracting early career talent is a priority for me. It is a priority for the President's Management Council. It's a central part of our PMA, our President's Management Agenda. It's Kieran Ahuja, director of OPM. All right. And civil service reform, if that could somehow be applied to the younger set, doesn't seem to be anyone's agenda at this point. I mean, it's talked about from time to time. So OPM is trying to get around that. And how are they doing it? Exactly. So the way that they're trying to kind of get around that and focus on early career recruitment a little bit more, they've talked about some recent hiring authorities that they've added that are specifically directed at those early career candidates. For example, the post-secondary hiring authority and the recent graduate hiring authority. So those look at one looks at term and temporary positions. One looks at permanent career positions, but basically just piecemeal ways of trying to, to deal with this hiring challenge. Now, OPM has completed a couple of experiments that they're trying to maybe reproduce around the government. That's right. So one example that Ahuja talked about recently was the six-month hiring spree under the bipartisan infrastructure law. And basically that got its own hiring authority as well. And a specific section on usajobs.gov 
where you can look just at infrastructure jobs. Ahuja explained a little bit more of what that looked like. We developed joint job announcements and shared certs across these agencies for HR specialists, grant managers, contract officers, data analysts, and now we're moving to STEM fields. This allowed us to track the data. And also, let me tell you, we tracked all this data on talent dashboards that we're setting up. Um, I know some agencies have been doing this, but this is not across the board to do this type of tracking. And in many ways, the way we were looking to pull hiring, to use online assessments, to share these certs, really did improve time to hire and also ensured that we had the quality of the candidates that we wanted. That's Director of OPM, Kieran Ahuja, talking at a recent event with the National Academy of Public Administration. And lots of agencies have used internships. And where does that whole complex stand at this point? The Biden administration has set a goal of hiring 35,000 federal interns for fiscal 2023. That's not unheard of. It's something the federal government has achieved back in 2010. But more recently, the number of internships has gone down significantly. So they're trying to bring that number back up to what it was about 10, 12 years ago. And it's also now a central part of this internship opportunity process. They're trying to expand paid internship opportunities as well. Ahuja mentioned that there is guidance that's coming very soon to try to encourage agencies to pay their interns. Yeah, well, that's better than not paying them. (laughs) It should certainly meet more attractive opportunity. What other federal programs have you uncovered? You've been doing a lot of reporting on this. Mm -hmm. So in one example, there's the president or Presidential Management Fellowship Program. That's a two-year program for graduate students. They've made some progress on that. They broke a record with 10,000 applications this year, so it's something that has picked up a lot. Uh, They also talked about different programs that might help with retention and recruitment for early career employees. One of those, as an example, is the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. Younger employees generally would be more likely to have student debt and have taken out loans to go to college. That program, which relieves debt uh, for those who have served 10 years in the government, potentially a retention factor that could help bring more young people sure. into government. Yeah. No FFTs, though, right? That's federal foosball table. Uh, <laughs> no, none of that. <laughs> All right. And agencies have some of their own strategies for trying to get these younger people in and recruiting and retention in general. What are some of those you've come across? A lot of agencies have talked about things like town halls, listening sessions, better communication, just to try to make sure people feel welcomed as soon as they come on board and that they're listened to. But there's a little bit more than that. For example, Joseph Abbott, who's the chief human capital officer at Food and Safety Inspection Services at the Agriculture Department, he explained some of the things that his agency is doing for early career talent. Flexible work schedules. We have special pay setting. Uh, for hard-to-fill locations. Another strategy we're using is uh, for continuing education, so employees that want to pursue advanced learning. It doesn't necessarily have to be a degree program. They want to learn a new skill, a new trait for their career. Maybe it's they're in the food science and they want to learn about the finance or program management, and we allow them the opportunity to go and do that. All right. And so that is what's going on at Food and Inspection Service. And Drew, a lot of the focus is on early career, but retention is something the government cares about throughout a person's career. You want those experienced 30, 40, 50-year-olds to maybe stick around. What's going on on that front? One example for that, Tom, is at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Their deputy chief human capital officer talked about how they're trying to incentivize employees across their entire career with rotational assignments. So it's a way to 
basically allow someone to take a temporary position with a different organization or on a different project that can help with not only their own skills, but retention overall. So here's still worth talking about that. Employees find that a real value. They're getting to do something outside of maybe their normal career field. So that's a great retention tool that we're using. No, it makes folks want to uh, stay with the organization because they know they can get different opportunities and learn different things. And it's going to help them develop, help them you know, get promoted, all the things they're trying to do. And that's Deputy Chief Human Capital Officer Eric Dilworth at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So basically, with Ahuja at OPM and some of these other Chicos, they're not simply admiring the problem, but doing things about it. Exactly, Tom. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today 
that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way 
to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. Your training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. 
It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now. Available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. The world is always on. But you shouldn't be. Put junk sleep to bed. During Mattress Firm's Dream Sember Sale, get a king for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin and save up to $700 on Sealy. Only at Mattress Firm.